Hey, Katie. Hey, Jesse. I'm sorry, I thought you were then going to say, and hey, Helen. Wait, that, <laughs> no, you did not oh, explain God. that. In no oh, way did you God. explain that bit. <laughs> you did not explain that at all. Okay. Let's just go with this. Let's just go with this. Let's continue from here. Yeah, we're joined by uh, <laughs> we're joined by Helen Lewis. Helen, how's it going? Excellent yeah. gag, Jesse. <laughs> we're, Helen, Helen now sees the professionalism that goes into every episode of whatever the fuck this podcast is. Um, can I, Helen, can I just take... Okay, 10 seconds to explain how you and I got to know one another. Yeah, I don't remember how that is, so this is going to be news to me. <laughs> She's blocked People it don't out. know this. Helen Lewis um, had trouble breaking into broadcast because she had like a really thick Texas drawl. So it was like, howdy, y'all. Welcome to the BBC. <laughs> and that just, no one could understand what she was saying. So she got in touch with me. I do some accent coaching on the side, and that's how she now sounds the way she sounds. So um, I'm glad this worked out for you, Helen. Thank you very much. I thought the way that we met was the first time you covered me on the podcast, you got my name wrong throughout <laughs> the supplement. Putting you in a bracket with the other person who consistently gets my name wrong, it was Jordan Peterson, who <laughs> referred to me, I think it's Helen Brown. So thanks for that. Did you call you Helen Joyce? <laughs> no, that was what usually happens is that there is obviously a range of British Helens and like yeah. very in spiciness. But so sometimes people, I think I'm probably the least spicy of the British Helens, but people do confuse me with one of the other ones quite a lot. Well, we were all uh, recently. We were all named together in a paragraph in Business Insider magazine. Did you see this? I was very excited to learn that I had been moonlighting for Barry Weiss's Substack without apparently it processing through my conscious brain at any point. Yeah. Should we just read the original just so people know what we're talking about? It was kind of amazing. Yeah, go for it. I don't have it up. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny about it is it's Business Insider, right? I I could understand if it was some an overtly progressive journal that kind of thinks that we're all beyond the pale. But it's like Business Insider. Don't they just write about businesses inside businesses? No, not anymore. Oh no, the Insider has like uh, basically any American publication has had a segment dedicated to being crazy since 2016. So Insider does a range of like good stuff and actual reporting, and then uh, this sort of thing. Okay, so this article is by someone named Lindsay Dodgson. Musk's media renegades, the anti-establishment writers, including Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, chosen for the Twitter files. And I saw this because I embarrassingly have a Google alert for all of your names, not mine, but all of yours. Sure. And uh, so I, this, this came into my, my Gmail. And so I read the following paragraph. In January 2021, Weiss also set up a substack in an outlet called The Free Press, focusing again on gender issues and hosting gender-critical and anti-transgender activists such as Helen Lewis, Julie Bindle, Katie Herzog, and Jesse Single. I do appreciate that Jesse Single is at the end of the paragraph where he belongs, but other than that, everything about that paragraph is incorrect, including the name of the outlet. It wasn't called The Free Press in 2021. It wasn't focused on gender issues. Helen, I've literally never written for it. Although good, exciting for you, Jesse, you've broken the hardest, the last hardest glass ceiling of being a turf. (laughs) It's exciting to find that you must be excited to discover that you're a woman. I've often been confused about being a turf, yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, that was big news for Helen and and demonstrates the uh, quality control going on at Insider. They did correct that, right, Katie? Sort of. They corrected it. They they removed Helen's name, which I was thrilled to see because, of course, we don't want to be lumped in with Helen. And they just, instead of calling us anti-transgender activists, they just decided to call us uh, gender-critical activists instead. (laughs) It's too bad they removed Helen's name because she could really use the exposure. She just has trouble, doesn't have much of a platform. But um, Helen, thank you for joining us. On this increasingly British show. There we go. Yes. There we go. That's what she said. Helen, Helen, what is the name of this increasingly British podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Helen Lewis. And, and I'm, I'm Jesse Herzog. Single. No, nope, don't worry about Katie. It's just me and Helen. <laughs> Can take it from here? No, no, Katie, no, no, take no. five. 
No, no, no. I've been trying. This is great because I've been trying to edge Jesse out of the podcast for months and replace him with Helen with you. Uh, so I feel like I'm one step further on this. And and today we're going to do two things. First, we're going to talk about your new BBC podcast, New Gurus, and then we're going to play a game. Yes. Have you either of you ever been to a British pub quiz? No. no. I, this is, I imagine it's not that different than American yeah, is pub it? quizzes. Do you have bar quizzes? Yeah, bar yeah. quiz culture and play in like enclaves like Brooklyn are very big. I don't do them much, but that's a uh, familiar format. I specifically avoid them, but yes, they exist. Do you have a thing where you have to give yourself joke team names? Yes. Yep. Okay, that's good. Yep. Okay, so none of this is alien to you. This is all going to be transatlantically fine. Okay, great. Um, okay, so we're going to get to that in a moment. Helen is going to quiz us. But first, uh, tell us about your new podcast. This is on the BBC. It's called New Gurus. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are quite a lot of people out on the internet uh, giving advice uh, on a range of different topics from wellness to productivity to crypto to, um, well, we have a, a sort of twin pair of episodes, really, which are um, racial diversity gurus and then the intellectual dark web, very much the kind of yin and the yang, I would say, of, of politics. And um, I've just got to go and meet them all, go and meet the people who believe in them and try and understand what it is that's driving everybody to kind of look to their own little priests and wizards in whatever sector it is that they're interested in. Okay. And one of those stories that you focus that you focus on is diversity gurus, uh, specifically Syra Rao and Re- Regina Jackson, both friends of the podcast. They recently published a book called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. They have a documentary called Naturally Deconstructing Karen. And of course, they are perhaps most famous because they started an organization called Race to Dinner, which is a sort of diversity training for guilty white women. We're going to dive into those two specifically in a moment. But first, in the show, in that episode, you talk a little bit about the origins of diversity training, which I was unfamiliar with. Where does this come from? Yeah, I think it's really helpful to see how it has always been a kind of HR-driven exercise. And we talked to Pamela Newkirk, who's a, who wrote a book called Diversity, Inc. She's a black New Yorker and a journalism professor. And she talked about the fact that, you know, um, if you think about the Anita Hill case, you know, and, and the idea that sexual harassment becomes a real concern for companies, then what do they do? They in, put in place this whole defensive architecture that they can then point to and say, well, look, you know, we were doing something about sexual harassment. We had a day where we sat everyone down specifically and said, don't do any sexual harassment. We're really against that. Um, And and that's kind of, I think, where the modern diversity training's legacy is, right? It's a kind of defensive move by companies to be seen to be doing something about these bigger structural issues. And it's huge. It's billions and billions of dollars in the US, an incredible amount of money. And I find them very funny. Like I interviewed Ibram X. Kendi, who's a fellow Atlantic writer, somebody I've got a lot of time for. He, He explained himself very well. But you know, he talks fundamentally about the fact that he's an anti-capitalist. He says capitalism and racism are conjoined hmm. twins. And I did have to say to him, how does that square with taking 20 grand from Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, wherever it might be, to kind of come in and, and talk to them at the end of the which they're going to go away and go back to doing some capitalism? And it's this, um, you know, it's this unresolvable conflict at the heart of, of using corporations for social change like that. Yeah, it does seem to me that this is a really good example of concept creep. Like this thing starts in in HR departments at law firms to avoid lawsuits. And then 40 years later, you're having things like race to dinner. Uh, Please explain that. What is going on with race to dinner? So race to dinner for $5,000, you as a white woman, and I do recommend that you do this, Katie, frankly, get together Another 10 or 12 of your white lady, your whitest lady friends. I don't um, have 10 or 12 white lady friends. I'll have to do it solo. Okay. 
<laughs> I mean, that would be fairly intense if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, you don't have 10 or 12 friends of any color or gender. <laughs> That's true. You, I mean, I would kind of like to see them encounter your Trumpy neighbor. I think that might, that might explain. <laughs> oh my God, race to dinner with the 84. 84- oh, oh my God, we would have, what would we have to eat at that meal? I guess he, he mostly eats uh, microwave dinners, so we could all go over to his house for some microwave mac and cheese. Syra Rao is just like bathing him, telling him he's a bad man. <laughs> but I think they're a really interesting pairing. So um, Regina Jackson is 72, she's black, and then Syra is um, Indian American and, and a bit younger. And she talks very interesting about, which I think is a story you hear a lot about having been assumed to be kind of um, assimilated and being treated as sort of proxy white by people until 9-11. And then this immense feeling suddenly of being kind of othered and people treating her very differently. And that seems to have been when she became a kind of real um, racial avenger, I guess. Whereas it's interesting to talk to Regina, who's, you know, lived as a, as a black woman in America for seven decades, eight decades, she's into now. And actually sort of much more the, the chiller half of, of the pairing, as I think you'll hear when you hear the episode. She's kind of much more laid back than Syra, who is pretty angry, I would say. And I know that's a very loaded word, and they'll probably get annoyed with me for saying it. But she is, you know. You just called a woman of color angry. But I, you know, but I think she is. I think she's fierce about it. Um, and I think she says some things that I think probably some white people would think were racist. If you agree that you know you can be racist against white people, which I know is a controversial topic in itself. But yes, yeah, so Katie, back to your dinner. It's you, your ten imaginary white women friends, like maybe some, like, <laughs> sort of mops with a stick on the end. Um, and then you sit down. And you, uh, you know, ding, ding, ding on the wine glass. And then they'd say, put your hands up if you're racist. And do you put your hand up? Well, no, but I suppose I, I'm supposed to in this moment. That's the correct answer right. is to say yes. Okay. It would be it would be a short dinner otherwise, I feel like. <laughs> right, right. Right. No, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. Well, and then and then Sarah puts her hand up and says that she's anti-black. Um, and then they have, you know, a lot of discussion then kind of happens about some, some poor fool will inevitably go, well, I don't see color wrong, very much the wrong thing to say. Um, and you know, you know, I, I actually, I've got a, you know, I'm in a mixed race marriage again, not, um, a, a suitable thing to say. And then they will kind of work through all of the ways in which they have, they have erred and strayed from God's good grace. But they will not cry. If they cry, they go to the special crying room. Yeah, we have, a, we have a clip of that, actually. This is Regina Jackson speaking. One of the things that we don't really allow at the dinner table is crying. If you have to cry, the host sets up a room ahead of time and you leave the table and you go get your crying. Because we all know what happens with white lady tears. Black people have been lynched. You know, we have 14-year-old boy, Emmett Till, murdered because supposedly he flirted with a white woman. So, no, we're not putting up with white people nonsense. And that really... That really struck me because there's also an entire chapter in Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility called White Women's Tears, where she talks about how incredibly manipulative. And like, I find it very oddly masochistic. I say in the documentary, like, this is not my idea of a great night in um, to invite some friends over and then be sort of berated about your sins. And then you have to feel bad about them, but you have to feel bad about them in a way that is very strictly delineated. Um, I don't really understand it. So yeah, that that jump from... White women's tears have led to black people being lynched to in 2022, if a white woman starts crying, she is bad or being emotionally manipulative when when I feel like usually people can't control what whether they cry. I, I don't know. Do, do you think this is just a way of like really hitting people in a vulnerable place? Because that, that's a little bit emotionally manipulative on its own, right? To tell someone if you're crying, you're doing something wrong. 
Well, I just wanted to interview them. And I interviewed a woman called Susie Berg, who had one of these, she had a race to lunch um, with some delightful vegan chickpea sandwiches. Um, you know, because I don't understand it at all. And that's one of the things I find you know, most attracts me to journalism is just going, you are doing something that I find utterly inexplicable. And obviously, you're getting something from it. So what is it that I'm not getting here? And I do think there is a deep strain of masochism that runs through a lot of high status women, I guess, you know, whether you want to call it white or middle class or professional upper middle class, or whatever it is, about kind of wanting to sort of luxuriating kind of guilt. Like I always find it very interesting when I was growing up in Britain that um, the men's magazines like FHM and Nuts and Zoo were all kind of like, war, you know, like, let's go to Vegas, play some poker, let's do this, let's drive a car, it's also cool. And then the women's magazines were like, you are a hairy, disgusting creature <laughs> covered in blubbery horror. Like, here's how you can get rid of your cankles. And, 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 and you just can't sell men stuff that's about how profoundly shit they are and they're failing and they're kind of you know, just sort of, you know, need to atone for themselves. Like I did say to them, could you do this dinner with, with 10 men? I just don't believe that 10 men would sit there. <laughs> I think it'd be kind of fascinating to try. And so what is the outcome of this dinner? So you start the dinner, they ask who, you know, raise your hand when you're racist. Nobody does it except for Syrah Rao because she's the only one who knows the correct answer. And the correct answer in this case is yes, I am anti-black. And then does the inter, does the dinner end with them all, you know, at the end of the, the dinner, hold your hand up and you're racist. And the positive outcome is everybody declaring that they are racist. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. Cause you've accepted <laughs> that you, no, but it's quite religious, isn't it? That you've accepted that you're yes. a sinner and you need to be reborn. Um, and it's also kind of a finger trap in that the less you're willing to say that you're racist, the more that you are racist. Because this is another thing I find absolutely fascinating, right? It's not like everybody's sitting there in their clan hoods. These are women in, you know, upper middle class liberal suburbs by and of large course. doing this. And yet they will say things like, I know that women like me are the worst. And you're like, I think the Nazis were the worst, actually, really, if we're going to be getting into rankings here. Right. And and do they explain why they target women and not men? Well, they gave two reasons. And one is the idea that women are kind of power adjacent um, and they are unwilling to take kind of responsibility for that. And then the second, much more kind of honestly, was a bit like we don't want to get shot. Really, And they think that is, the types of men who are going to go to a dinner like this are going to be physically violent towards them? No, I feel that the type of men who would go to a dinner would be very much like yeah. vegan cyclists. Yeah. Probably not prone to <laughs> massive outbreaks. The Jesse Singles. The soy boys. I wouldn't want to the, say. The beta yeah, cucks. But, yeah. um, I mean, that's what's so broken about this whole discourse. And Katie has written about this, where the whole like white women are the worst discourse. There is a group of white women who consistently vote for Trump. They're called Republicans. Right. And they're not going to race to dinner. They're not receptive to diversity training. So it's like if you want there to be a large market for your wares, you almost have to target people who probably have the lowest levels of racial animosity, right? Yeah, but there's another thing going on, isn't there, which is the fact that if you say white women are terrible, you can get a lot of white men who are the high status, truly high status people to agree with you. In the same way that if you've seen over the last couple of days, the sort of mad level of attacks on JK Rowling for opening this female only rape crisis center from men who 10 years ago would have not had a comment on feminism, right? They would have known that it was their thing to kind of just butt out. Now, the, the way that the discourse has gone on gender, they feel very empowered to have a go and say women are the worst. You know, the worst women. Um, and I think that there is a, a great deal of power in being the woman who agrees. You know, I think the phrase they use on the internet is the kind of the pick me woman, right? Like it's the kind of, oh, all the other women. Or, or Ariel Levy called it in the 2000s, you know, female chauvinist pigs. The kind of fact that actually as a woman, there's a great deal of value in agreeing that you are in fact the worst. Or not you, but like women like you and you're, you're a rare exception. Well, I also feel like, I mean, this touches on turf discourse and 
which sometimes, like, I don't know. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it often gets, like, pretty violent and abusive. Um, I, I don't know. I think if you license people to be incredibly vicious to women, whatever the context, it will attract a certain type of dude who just is looking for an excuse to do that, right? Yeah, there was that mad tweet, I remember, in the one of the early J.K. Rowling things from an Elizabeth Warren staffer, which was just, like, completely abusive and sort of violent and sort of petulant. This incredibly, like, adult man having this sort of petulant rage. And I thought, this is mad. Like, I just don't know if that this person would... You know, this person clearly doesn't see women as marginalised. And I think that's one of the things that I've definitely seen in the last... 10 years of internet discourse is that women aren't really oppressed, which is like a classic MRA trope that actually women are the, you know, women have got sexual power over men. So I don't know why they're complaining all the time. It's actually men who have to go out and, you know, do lumberjack stuff that, that, that makes it the worst for them. And that has been adopted, you know, that would have seemed like a right wing men's rights activist thing to say 10 years ago. And it has now been adopted wholesale by quite bits of the progressive male left. Um, to say, actually, white women have got it really easy. What on earth are they complaining about? Like, like as if sexism, absent other things, does not actually functionally exist. Right. And, and I'm curious, do Sarah Rao and Regina Jackson, do they talk about class at all in these dinners? I'm trying to think back through the book and whether or not they do. I mean, the one thing I should say in their defense, apart from the fact that everybody involved has chosen to do this to themselves. Right. So, you know, fine. If you, you know, some people go to piss parties, some will have Sarah <laughs> Rao has to berate them. Like, who am I to judge how people spend their free time? Um, but yeah, you know, they don't, they don't take money from this. It, they, ha- they have a white woman that they employ to do their admin. Um, which sort of sorry, it just sort of makes me laugh in the same way that sometimes people talk about whether or not I hate men, and I think yes, that's true. I've imprisoned one in my house, <laughs> cups of tea, and loading my dishwasher. They have a white woman who works for them, and she takes the salary. But they're not, as far as I know, getting kind of super rich off this. Well, they put it back into the organization, right? Yeah, right. They do genuinely see it as a kind of mission that they're on um, to do this. Interesting. And so, Sarah Rao, I want to. I just picked out a, a few of her tweets. I want to read a few of your tweets. Here's one. I will never stop marveling at how white people have ruined the world and the planet. If you are white and your black and brown friends are not regularly challenging your whiteness, chances are they don't trust you and are absolutely talking about your whiteness, just not to you. White people would rather die than tell the truth about white supremacy, racism, and their role in both. To me, this strikes me as very racist because she is talking about individuals as though white people as though we are a monolith. Do, do people confront her about this at the dinners? No, they. I mean, I think this again comes back to the um, type of people that do them. They will often say things that you know, you and I know are exactly the things that you can't say in this kind of discourse, right? The kind of I'm colorblind or like some of my best friends are black. There are all these sort of clueless but well-meaning things that people will say that are, you know, absolutely seen as the worst possible things that you can say in this this level of discourse. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I do think this is one of the things I wanted to explore in it that the way. The, the racial discourse has changed in the sense that like you it is now no longer that racism is about looking at other races and stereotyping and generalizing them it is seen much more as a hierarchical power structure that has very rigid limits so you know white people are always at the top and that downplays the fact that you know japan had an empire you know the ottomans had an empire there were you know genghis khan was not a good lad you know it's not the history of the world is not purely a history of, of white supremacy and you have to try and slightly 
particularly when you're talking outside the American context, take that a bit into account. It does end up being very much an American black-white discourse, which flattens it all incredibly. I know you talked about this before on the podcast, but it's it's really striking how all of this corporate training really relies on those very simple reductive assumptions. Yeah. And do you see this in the UK? Or have we exported our discourse to you? Yeah, I think it's really weird. Um, Tomawa Iwilade is currently working on a book about this, about the kind of, um, you know, American internet taking over the world. And it is really weirdly true. Like, I was a friend, my friend Stephen pointed this out that during the George Floyd protests, there was a, do you know, was it talking about the move to use the word BIPOC? Do you remember this? Yeah. Um, which is like what black, indigenous and people of color. And someone used it on the, on the BBC and he was like, this makes no sense in the context of Britain. Like the indigenous people are like the beacon right. people, or like, <laughs> like the, the Anglo-Saxons, you know, or the Celts or whatever it might be. Like it's not the same as it would be in America or Australia yeah. or whatever. So we we can't import these phrases that don't make any that don't make any. I sense. love that the idea that when you're talking about BIPOCs in the UK, you're actually talking about white people. Exactly. What 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 of the poor Anglo-Saxon in their world? You know. <laughs> Anglo-Saxons to the front. But that was um, the thing, like, t- again, 10 years ago, if someone talked about indigenous Britons, they were a member of the British National Party. They were, a, they were a racist who was saying that Britain is a white country. So it's quite weird to now see it, like, rebranded as, as a kind of progressive thing to say. Yeah, this does seem very, very American. Okay, I want to play another clip for you. Syra Rao and Regina Jackson represent a more urgent, confrontational approach to anti-racism. So, as you might have spotted, I am indeed a white woman, Tell me what are the kind of things I'm likely to be getting wrong out of cluelessness. I would actually say your question was gaslighting, Helen, because cluelessness, cluelessness, feigned ignorance, feigned ignorance on the part of white people is foundational to white supremacy. So I don't know. Feigned ignorance on the part of men is critical to patriarchy. Feigned ignorance on the part of able-bodied people is part of ableism. So you know. Yeah, I found this one really interesting because by definition, if I already know about it, then you'd think I either would do something about it or um, I'm I'm clearly taking the decision that I don't want to. So, and lots of the, the anti-white feminism books all have the same construction about like what you already know or like what, you know, the ways in which you know that you're going wrong and you haven't fully kind of accepted into your heart yet. And I find that really interesting. I find it a bit difficult to cope with because I do think huge amounts of things that make people of color feel uncomfortable are actually do fall into the well-meaning cluelessness bracket. And actually the, you know, some of the diversity trainings, we, I make my mum take a diversity training with me, my 77 year old mum in this. And she, she's quite angry about something that's presented as a microaggression. She just thinks it's someone being fundamentally very rude and making someone feel very uncomfortable. And it's a weird rebranding about, um, you know, just an interpersonal bit of shittiness now has to have this kind of very modern label attached to it that actually turns a lot of people off, right? If I say to you that was rude, don't do that. Don't, you know, say to somebody that the, the clip, the example that we give is something like, oh, you know, I always like you. I, I don't even think of you as black. It's just a rude thing to say. And actually, most people will kind of agree to that. If you say that's a microaggression, then suddenly about 30% of people are like, don't use these newfangled words around me. Um, and, and that's sort of fascinating to me that's created its own vocabulary. And sometimes I think that kind of stuff is quite unhelpful, as is the idea of telling people that they do already know all the things that they're doing wrong. When so much of I think of the tension and then the backlash that you get to some of this stuff is people feeling that the rules have changed and they haven't been issued with the updated memo of what they can and can't say now. Like that's where I think a lot of the deep anxiety from people who don't actually want to be racist 
and wouldn't ever want to be racist, you know, because they fundamentally don't want to be rude to other people and make them feel bad. And yet, nonetheless, they feel they're stumbling into saying the wrong thing. Right. And so in the episode, so a lot of it is about Sire Rao and Regina Jackson. But as you mentioned, you also talked to Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, you play some clips from Robin D'Angelo. And uh, Kendi actually sounds pretty reasonable compared to Sire Rao, I will say. And I wonder, after talking to all these people involved in this industry, What's your sense of these big DEI trainings or big or small DEI, tra- DEI trainings? Do they actually change hearts and minds? Do they make institutions anti-racist? I think Kendi's a really interesting one because he's been put through the kind of filter. So you only hear the kind of most extreme things that he says. So, and he's very upfront about it. In How to Be an Anti-Racist, he talks about the fact that, you know, he went through bootstrapping conservatism. Then he went through this kind of strange phase at university where he thought white people were aliens. Did, did, like literal aliens? Mm, it's this kind of thing about how they got blue eyes because they're extraterrestrials. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kooky. I'm going to say it's kooky. I'm going to put that one down as yeah. not proved yet. But like, I, I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a smart and thoughtful guy. And the other thing I felt was that because his day job is in a university, he didn't seem to be have gone extreme because of the internet. If you see what I mean, like he's not there firing off tweets at you know two a.m. in the morning um, with his thoughts on whatever. Like he seemed a lot more grounded than some of the people I meet in other episodes, um, particularly the intellectual dark web episode, which is the one after that. So I, I like that. I just I'm still massively unconvinced about the evidence base for this stuff. I think some of it is really good. I think, as you say, there are people who are just saying things that they don't realize the world has moved on and you shouldn't say that anymore. That stuff can be really helpful. Um, but the best of those trainings come from a position of like, we're all good people. We're all trying to be better rather than like sit in the corner and think about all the things you've done wrong, whitey, because that is just obviously going to, some people are going to absolutely lap that up. And some people are going to revolt against that and just double down and feel like I'm being attacked. Why am I being attacked? You can't say anything as a white man anymore. And, you know, I've been reporting in Florida recently and you will hear people say that, you know, like white men are the most oppressed. It's the hardest thing. You can't say anything as a white man anymore. Those people are out there and just telling them to sort of cry harder about what they're getting wrong is not the way to reach them. My advice to them would be to get a podcast. <laughs> the few remaining people that do not have a podcast. Do that, That's yeah. the problem. Do, do you think that, that some of that stuff might be a feature rather than a bug? Because when I've looked into this a little bit, none of these DEI approaches actually track their outcomes or provide any data they work. I, I think what might happen in some cases is the more confrontational ones enter an institution cause a backlash because they're crazy and then the backlash is taken as proof that more work needs to be done do you think there could be something that that's what i mean about the kind of finger trapper aspect which is that if you're complaining about this it's it's oh now it's proven that you're racist that there are no possible objections to them that aren't secretly driven um by by kind of defensiveness over your white supremacy and i just don't think it's true in lots of organizations. And I also think the kind of organizations that these trainings tend to get embedded in do tend to be for the kind of specific type. Um, You know, I'm just, you know, my fundamental problem with it is I just think that if you're sitting in a merchant bank somewhere doing high frequency trading, the idea that an hour of listening to somebody um, talk earnestly about racism is in any way going to kind of alter your views seems to be to be hopelessly ambitious. Um, and like you say, the, the evidence base for things like the implicit bias test is, we didn't go into this at all, but the idea that it can actually change real world behaviors is really not proven at all, as far as I know. No, it's it's like not even 
correlated meaningfully with real world behaviors. It's uh, it's crazy that it's still used, to be honest, because there's just so little evidence underpinning it. Yeah, and even the creator of the test has said this. <laughs> A version of it. He, he flip-flopped, but yeah, yeah. A version, yeah. Yeah, and but I can see why culturally, like if you're going to work in a very multicultural environment, it's really useful to have a space which you can kind of talk about those in a relaxed way. Like, for example, you know, I live in London, which is pretty multicultural. So if you work in a school here, you're quite likely to have pupils from a range of different backgrounds, some of them from religious conservative backgrounds, for example, and, you know, as well as middle class liberal parents. And actually having some kind of forum in which to kind of just Add people's different expectations that they're coming to it. it doesn't seem like a bad thing all right helen so that's the fourth episode what else do we have to look forward to in this series well i start off with um russell brand i don't know if you remember him from his time as a oh, yeah. comedian and film star he now spends quite a lot of time in what looks like a kind of log cabin um in the home counties in england talking about the great reset and they and how they are trying to control you um Lots of and does, is they a bunch of like non-binary gender queers, or is they a, a global conspiracy, or both? It's usually Jews, Jews. non-binary Jews. No, I don't think he's really got into the gender wars. Um, he's, oh, he has so much to look forward to. I would say that he's somebody who very firmly knows what a woman is. Um, <laughs> tell that from his dating history, but um, yeah. So, but he is he's big into the Great Reset, and um, you know the kind of which is for people who have blessedly missed this discourse is the idea that Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, which hosts the Davos Summit every year, um, they are sort of infiltrating world governments. They are enacting a sinister plan to make people give up all their money. Um, and it's very funny because the World Economic Forum has got a page on its website for the Great Reset, which turns out when you read it to be a kind of slightly boring, you know, like, let's build back better after COVID kind of vibe. Uh. I mean, I, I personally probably wouldn't put my evil master plan on my website. So maybe that's <laughs> called us all. But yeah. Um, who else have we got? So the IDW episode, I think, will be a treat for your listeners because um, it revisits my old sparring partner, Jordan Peterson um, and James Lindsay. Um, and, you know, I really tell, I, it's called Gazing into the Abyss, which I'm sure he knows from the Nietzsche quote about, you know, he, whoever fights monsters must see to it. He does not become a monster himself. When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. And which is how I feel about the kind of heterodox sphere. And I'm kind of interested, like it's been a, it's been a bad year for the heterodox sphere. <laughs> and Jesse, you wrote a Substack piece about like, screw you guys. I love being out of the mainstream media. I'm king of the world. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> was that the headline? Yeah, that was the headline. It does sound like yeah. it. <laughs> it was pretty, but but do you do you like do you ever feel yourself going bonkers oh yeah no no i well i did a piece for uh the spectator actually which has hoovered up a bunch of like quote-unquote heterodox people i wrote about this like effect of anti-woke people for lack of a better term making that the center of their identity and almost anyone who makes quote-unquote fighting wokeness the center of their identity Seems to inevitably go crazy. There could be exceptions, but I'm having trouble thinking of any. Sam Harris is the one I, I think is, is really stands out from the original IDW members. So you've got people like sure. Majid Nawaz gets fired from LBC for his, um, you know, saying that the COVID is ushering in a fascist new world order. Uh, you know, whatever it might be. D Douglas Murray ends up kind of standing for various people. In his Actually, a lot of them go a bit Orbanist. Um, but, oh, my God. They love hungry. Yeah. but but And then Brett Weinstein goes into ivermectin kind of COVID stuff and is now on a panel convened by Ron DeSantis in Florida. Really? But Sam Harris has basically ripped up his his IDW membership card. Yeah, it's very funny if you watch it because he goes, there's all these people who publish medical papers and then it goes to Brett Weinstein and he goes, you may be asking why an evolutionary biologist is here on this panel. 
And then he looks sort of... I was at <laughs> He looks slightly uncomfortable and he's like, he can't say the real answer, which is just, you know, I'm here because this panel is all about owning the libs and I will turn up to the opening of an envelope. But um, that is the true <laughs> answer, yeah. I, I think the Sam Harris is a good example of like the way to shield yourself from that stuff is to maybe just also be interested in other things. Like mm. Sam has a wide range of interests, including consciousness, morality, meditation. If you like burst onto the scene and become famous because you're fighting wokeness or because wokeness fought you, right? you can see how that like sends people down some dark alleys. Well, and Sam has also been famous for a long time. Yeah. Although I think some of our listeners would probably listen to us talking about Sam Harris and say, no, he actually did lose his mind. He has Trump derangement syndrome because he said on, I don't know what show it was, he said on some show that essentially it was okay to suppress Hunter Biden's laptop because Trump was such a, a present danger. Um, so it was Constantin Kizin's, yeah. uh, it was trigonometry, I believe. Yeah. And he said base, yeah. And, and that's been a very interesting one to watch because I've been trying to calibrate myself on the Hunter Biden laptop story and also the Twitter files generally. And it's very hard, isn't it, to kind of separate out the fact that, you know, t- Twitter threads are not a way I would recommend that anybody do journalism. There is some interesting stuff in there, but I also find the way that, like, I do think there is a kind of, whatever you want to call it, QAnon, GOP sort of cinematic universe. And so there was a kind of mention of, oh my God, this guy's the lawyer for Twitter. Like you were supposed to already know that this was a character that you hated and was innately kind of sinister. Um, And it's been quite interesting to see some of the more moderate Republicans like Krista Nunu of um, New Hampshire say, if we spend all our time talking about this, sort of 85% of the electorate have no idea. Like who, you know, so someone like Yol Roth, who I saw Jesse, you criticized him, and I think that's probably fair. Like, I do think there were some very unfair moderation decisions, you know, particularly somebody who's in the quote unquote gender critical feminist camp. There were some very arbitrary um, bans and suspensions handed out. But I also really dislike the way that he has obviously been turned into here's this guy who's a groomer. Yeah. You know, he actually is massively in favor of child pornography. Yeah. Well, so by the, just so you know, by the time this comes out, we'll have released our, an episode where we discuss that. And, and I think Katie and I were basically on the same page at this insane pylon of him where he's driven from his home due to violent threats, which I absolutely believe happened because he has a big segment of the internet calling him a pedophile. It's just, there is this, element of online discourse where we're all in a superhero movie with good guys and bad guys and the first step is to figure out who's the good guy and the bad guy and the bad guys like there, there's no punishment too severe for them and it's just it's i don't know it's not conducive to thoughtful discussion right yeah and i also think being being cancelled is this incredibly binding kind of network and that's the thing i felt with the idw and i you know i think you know you guys and I probably will feel the same about this, that you do end up feeling a lot of affinity for people who've been through the same extremely unpleasant experience at the hands of basically the same, like 30 people that do all totally. of this, this stuff. And it's, it's kind of, it's a glue. It's a very powerful social glue, but then you have to remember that maybe there are things I disagree with these people on as much as I have been through the same unpleasant experience. Well, not only that, but you need to realize that the people who acted cruelly toward you are themselves like a very specific type of person. I mean, like you're saying, it's the same 30 people who are just online obsessives trying to destroy everybody. That's not the average like liberal or Obama voter. And I see just like people really misunderstand that and act like, you know, just the average liberal is like the worst people on Twitter. Therefore, we need to flee liberalism or set up an alternative or something, which I I just don't think is the right way to go. Yeah, I definitely, I wouldn't do that. No, but I, I genuinely think there is a real problem. I mean, you, you blessedly missed the Jeremy Corbyn wars of the 2015 to 2019 with the Labour leader who was very left wing, but also carried with him a kind of comet tale of people who, who saw kind of being unpleasant to people on Twitter as praxis. 
And I do think, you know, that probably made it harder to consider his work on its merits because you just thought, oh, God, these people again. And like every time you wrote about something, you knew some sort of, you know, anime communists were going to come after you. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard to, I, I just, I struggle constantly with this idea of trying to kind of keep my eyes on the horizon of like what's actually happening and what's just bullshit. And I think that's probably the condition of the journalist in 2022, 2023. Um, okay. Anything else you want to say about the series before we move on? Um, it's funny, I hope, and it's going to annoy pretty much everybody on the internet. So, um, don't send me hate mail. I'm sorry if I was nasty about somebody that you really like. Um, but hopefully I've been fairly, you know, nasty about everyone equally in, in proportion to their due. I, uh, I cannot wait to hear the James Lindsay episode. I was going to say the, the James Lindsay episode, I believe is out quote unquote today, the day we're recording mm-hmm. this, right? Everyone wake yes. December 26th. No, not though. So. Yeah. Katie did so, not get it, even though I said I said <laughs> wink. She did not pick up on that context clue. Anyway, the first uh, yeah, the first four episodes came out last week, and then the second four episodes come out this week, and they will all be dropped as a as a box set. So you will be able to already listen to well Russell Brand wellness productivity and uh, white women's tears, and from today you will be also be able to listen to the intellectual dark web. Day Game, which is pickup artists, um, crypto, and then fortune tellers of the future. Something Ooh. for everyone. This Christmas. did you did you s- get to sword fight James Lindsay at any point? <laughs> no, I didn't. And oh, then what's the point of any of this? <laughs> Where does he even live now? Um, he lives in, in Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're asking us. <laughs> you're, surely you're outside his house right now. He's in the room with me, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he oh, okay. lives in uh, the sword capital of Tennessee. I think Knoxville. But the thing I learned about him that I didn't realize making this was, you know, his name's James A. Lindsay. His does name, the A stand for asshole? <laughs> the A stands for, I believe, Steve. <laughs> Wait, that does. No, 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 obviously not. No, it's the fact that he was, um, he was a new atheist. He was a big new atheist <laughs> in the 2000s. And he, uh, yeah, his name is James A. Lindsay, which stands for James Stephen Lindsay. Stay with me. Because he wanted a, he, he wanted a pseudonym when he was living in, I think, like the Deep South, um, to write these new atheist books. And so he said, the A and the S were next to each other on the keyboard, so I just made myself James A. Lindsay, which is amazing, like an absolutely bulletproof disguise. Of course he got away with it. How would anyone possibly think James Lindsay wrote the Aces books was James Stephen Lindsay that they knew? This is like the um, the Slate Star Codex guy, Scott Alexander, who went by Scott Alexander, but then he was outed as Scott Alexander Siskind. It's just like, you're not doing a good job hiding your identity. Yeah, this is some Clark Kent Superman ship. I think the A in James case may actually stand mm. for autism. Mm. But I, Are you allowed to say that? I don't think you're allowed to say that. <laughs> Helen and I are really opposed to that yeah, remark. We, uh, I'm, that was all Katie. Yeah, um, I'm dumping in it. But but that was really interesting to me because I also um, did another episode that was about a pickup artist and he had been, first of all, a big new atheist and then had turned and wanted to be a Greek Orthodox monk after that. So he went from being like super new atheist to super religious. And then he became a pickup artist. So from wanting to be celibate, he then went to like sleeping with hundreds of women. And so I have this kind of theory that some for lots of these people, what comes first is the need, you know, the need to be listened to, the need to be clever, the need to be right, the need to be validated. And then they pour themselves into whatever bottles the culture presents them with, which is also really my theory of terrorism, right? That that, that actually it often comes from, a set of personality traits and the kind of ideology that you grow up with influences, you know, if you're that kind of person, you end up gravitating to whatever is the dominant ideology in your uh, society at the time. 
So yeah, I, I think there's a kind of there's some obviously some armchair psychoanalysis by by me in this uh, of some of the people that you'll know. Okay, should we uh, move on? Yes. Are you ready for your, your quiz? Let's do some housekeeping first. Okay. All right, Helen, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't buy any merch anymore because you don't have the merch store. That's going to... No. No. We do Katie, have the merch. You're doing I, a terrible called job. You, I got mad and it reflectively called you Katie. Uh, <laughs> uh, Barpodmerch.com. Okay. And you have a subreddit, which is blocksandreported.reddit.com. I know this. Yep. Uh, What's our email address? Uh, blocksandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Jeez, I have more trouble. Yeah, I'm a professional. <laughs> what month was our fir- what what month did our first what month and year did our first episode? No, come I don't like you that much. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that either. 2020 was it? Was it? Was it a pandemic thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The pandemic's yeah. been really fantastic for us. That's why we unleashed <laughs> yeah. the pandemic. It it really worked out for us. Uh, yes, everything Helen said is true. Uh, anything else for housekeeping, or is that it? Yes, please go to blockedandreported.org, where for just five dollars a month, you can get three extra episodes of this show every month. We have a great and growing community over there. Check it out, blockedandreported.org. Okay, Helen, thank you for chipping in with housekeeping. You did an exemplary job. Now you have a quiz for us. Why don't you explain what the hell is going to happen here? Okay, I've got a couple of different rounds. They're very short. Um, and then I have got a quick fire round. Um, but basically what I want you... And then I have a tie break round where I ask you one individual question each based on how well you've listened to your co-host's pet peeves over the years. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not feeling that confident that you're going to get that one right, but, but we'll see. Um, and the sc- basically, it ends up being out of twenty-two, but, uh, but we'll see. Let me start the. Okay, so round one, it's called Stranger Than Fiction. Are you ready for this? <laughs> which of these is not a real thing? James Lindsay changed his Twitter name to. Okay, which one of these is not? The other ones that I really cannot stress enough are real things that James Lindsay changed uh-huh. his Twitter name to. James Lindsay weaponizing your mom. James Lindsay has masculine urges. James Lindsay, champion manspreader. James Lindsay, Russia's greatest love machine. Or James Lindsay, BDE variant. I think Russia's greatest love machine. That one's not familiar to me. <laughs> Jesse, do you want to demur? Can you can you read them one more time? Oh, James Lindsay, weaponizing your mum. James Lindsay has masculine he urges. He definitely did that. Has masculine urges. James Lindsay, champion manspreader. James Lindsay, Russia's greatest love machine. Or James Lindsay, BDE variant, which I believe for the more naive people among you stands for big dick energy variant i think i think i'm with katie i think it's the russia one you are correct very yeah. well done okay yeah two online yeah. every every correct answer our dignity yeah. slips a little bit further it's gonna be a recurring motif of this certainly okay in october jordan peterson released the abc of childhood tragedy volume one threatening that there will be more than one volume of this which of these is not a real jordan peterson children's book rhyme Frederick was sadly flawed after he was madly poured by his neighbour, deeply odd. Where the hell was Christian God? Okay, number one. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. It's going to take you a moment to really process these because the uh-huh. two that are real are very odd indeed. Okay, number two. Sarah sucked on lollipops. By 18, she was sucking cops. If only her <laughs> beloved dad hadn't made her feel so sad. Oh, okay, God. number two. Num- number three. Derek was a damaged little boy whose prancing father made him coy when he ended up in jail. All competed for his tail. Oh my god! What? So two of those two are of these, real. Two of these are real. Two of those are real. Yes, in a book that I presume oh you were supposed to give to actual children. Terrifying. And them. Jordan oh Peterson god. wrote this. I mean, did he? But he put it out under his name. Yeah. I I wrote it. <laughs> uh, 
I I I want the one about the suck the sucking. Yeah. I guess is largely more offensive. So just I hope that that's the fake one. I'm gonna go with that one. I'm, I agree. I think it's B. This is a very good performance. That was indeed. <laughs> The fake one, yeah. The third one is. So you 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 wrote that? Can you read it again? Because you wrote this, and we should take cancel Helen. Yeah, Sarah sucked on lollipops. By eighteen, she was sucking cops. If only her beloved dad hadn't made her feel so sad. You've captured his his ethos, his spirit. Let, yeah, I I feel like I have basically looked directly into the Matrix, and it's now part of me. You should uh, you should look into writing children's books yourselves. <laughs> it's true. It's a really real gap in the market. As, as Nietzsche once said. Do not gaze into the Peterson. The Peterson gazes also into you. Oh, no, it has as well, hasn't it? I just read a really good biography of Nietzsche in which obviously he goes mad because he sees someone um, beating a horse, right? And I just think that's that's the trajectory that I feel we're all on. Yeah. is I wonder if this Peterson book, if this would get banned from Florida schools or elevated by Florida <laughs> oh, schools. Oh, that's a tough one. Every student reads this. I mean, it's all about children and sex. It's It's just... Yeah, but yeah, in in the approved way, not in the bad way. Right, the okay. don't have it way. Yeah, which of these is not a real comment left by Mylianopolis's book editor on his tragically <laughs> never published manuscript? Okay, one need a stronger argument against feminism than saying they are ugly and sexless and have cats. Two delete irrelevant and superfluous ethnic joke. Three the use of phrases like two faced backstabbing bitches diminishes your overall point. Four. <laughs> I reject this assertion like Alex Jones rejects the option of a side salad. <laughs> Wait, so the so the question is which did he not say? No, no, which which yeah, comment from real. his editor was is was, real? Is yeah. not real. No, no. Not real. Yeah, again, stranger than fiction. The three of them okay, are real. Okay, I think four is not real. Is that the Alex Jones one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going with that too. Okay, another big win. See, what's happened here is that I've, when I've written them, I've, I've deliberately made them too ridiculous. <laughs> it's just a cool joke. Or we're just extremely online. You are I, have friend. I told this story before of how when his book went on pre-sale and was shooting up the Amazon charts, he kept sending me taunting emails about how well it was doing? <laughs> you I've could never... even now be Miley yeah. Office's ex-husband now that he's an ex <laughs> He was nagging you, Jesse. I almost yeah. just want to like go back to one of them and reply and be like, "How did how did that turn out? What happened?" <laughs> you got fired by Kanye. Fired by Kanye yeah. for being too crazy. Yeah, what a life. And the book never came out as well. Well, so here's the thing. The sad thing is, if you go to his Amazon page, it was published in some form, and I think it actually sold pretty well, like independently or something, which was not the the ending to the story I wanted. But I just think it's I think it's true. But it wasn't published by Simon and Schuster, right? Wasn't he? He was. They killed the contract. No, I I think some like yeah. Gonzo publisher, publisher picked it up. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe it's yeah Regnery that does all the. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, let's move on to round two. Round two, British tea. Um, this is all about British people. Food campaigner Jack Monroe was allegedly so poor she had to make her own what shampoo or, j- or bar soap gel- shower gel. You, can- you just gave three different <laughs> answers. You go need- this- <laughs> also, you're the expert here, so I gotta. What what, what do you pick? This is sh- the answer is shower gel. It is not Katie. It is soap. What? So- oh my god. Okay, wait. Katie's so she us down. so she said that she made the soap out of shower gel or the shower gel out of soap. Yeah, I think it's she. She made yeah. She set bars of something, didn't she? Oh no! Oh god! Yeah, she put bars. I'm, I'm correct about my, this. My, you're making me question my premise here, which is I maybe she did melt down soap to make shower gel. She did. Okay. That's what she did. Okay, then I'm going to give you. I'm that. I'm correcting because, you on this. Yeah, because, fact check. 
Wow. <laughs> I did a I did a lot of rate re- The host yeah. has become yeah. the contestant. Normally I would deduct points for like disagreeing <laughs> with the quiz master because you've got to respect the ref. But I think I'm going to give you that because you're right in the sense that uh, in a completely inexplicable move given that what they're just the same thing. They're the same thing, <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm not sure why lo- soap in a liquid form is any better than soap in a solid form. But she did allegedly take her, sh- her, her soap bars and boil them down into a liquid form. Makes total sense. Yeah, it's it's totally explicable. Okay, in J.K. Rowling's book Troubled Blood, what sexual fetish did a man kept under surveillance by Cormoran Strikes team have? Oh fuck! I should know this. I read the book. This isn't the. I'm I'm not proposing this as an answer because I didn't read. But this isn't just the dressing up as a woman, right? No, this is a different book. Oh. Can I get a hint? Wah wah! <laughs> is it an adult baby? <laughs> He was an adult baby, yes. <laughs> Don't kink shame, guys. Come on. Yeah, we've got an adult baby in the room right now. <laughs> You're not going to get the bonus question then, which is what infamous tweet do I strongly believe was the inspiration for that plot line? Oh, because God. I think Jake, my working theory of J.K. Rowling is that she's extremely online. Like the most recent book is just like so Tumblr. It's, it hurts. Okay, so I don't know what the tweet was, but can I guess who the tweeter was? You may. Owen Jones. Oh, no, but I'm sure I, the whole Corbinite sub- subplot of whichever one it is, the one with the horse, is heavily inspired by Owen Jones, is my strong belief. But no, um, <laughs> there was uh, a former football goalkeeper called Neville Southall who used to hand over his Twitter account to campaigners. And he once decided he was going to hand it over to adult babies. And people <laughs> like, that's disgusting. That's just a sexual fetish. That's not a real charity. And so he tweeted notoriously, <laughs> the adult baby takeover is off. Goodbye. <laughs> that's amazing. It's one of my favorite ever tweets. Um, okay, question number six. Who described their semi-erect penis as being like laying my own miscarried fetus across my hand? Grace Lavery. So quick. So quick on that one, Katie. It's almost <laughs> like you have a hundred copies of that book and you've given them to all your friends and family for Christmas. How did, how did you know that, Kate? Why do you know that? <laughs> I have a, a psychotic photographic memory for things that drive me absolutely fucking crazy. Why? Uh, in Helen... How can you justify reading that <laughs> sentence aloud? Just morally, ethnically. We're going to have to put a warning on this podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I actually find it extremely sexually arousing. Um, <laughs> so let's go on to round, round three. And in round three, in- Wait, don't you have a... Don't you have a uh, and we can cut this if you want. I think you've talked about this. You have a, a prior connection to Grace Labry, right? She and I were at Oxford, which I think is an obnoxious thing to say. Sorry, like, she and I were at Oxford together. Um, <laughs> university. We went to uni together. Yeah, we went to uni. We went to college together. Yeah, um, and... Uh, I was a member of the queer rights group because I was uh, a lot cooler. <laughs> Wait, were you? Were you <laughs> back were then? You, did you identify as queer then, or was this as an ally? Or do you now? I don't actually know. Yeah, I don't identify as straight, but it's kind of irrelevant seeing as I've been married to men for the past 12 years. Like, I just think it's, you know, it's just, it's embarrassing at this point. That's not the American style. You really got to lean into that. Be more like Jamal Jamel. <laughs> we're here with, we're here with queer podcasters. <laughs> Probably BIPOC if you go far back enough. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Actually. I'm very pale, so maybe I am. Um, well, that's good. This is really going to help my career. Um, okay, round three, internet personality. Oh, wait, wait, no, just tell me, were you friends with, with, with Grace at Oxford? Or no, did you travel to different I believe circles? she went to, obviously she was under her male name then. She went to Wadham College, which was known as the gay college. It was um, nicknamed Sodom College. You see what we did there? <laughs> really we subtle, just different. that dry, subtle British humor. <laughs> They called it Buttfuck University. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so I used to go to the queer rights group um, and I, I just have absolutely no, no memory of her there, which kind of makes sense. I guess, you know, at the time she was a straight guy. Um, so yeah, it's sad, you know, maybe how different life could have been had her and my eyes met across a poorly attended um, campaign group. I, Indeed, you'd be a cute couple. <laughs> no, no, we wouldn't. <laughs> but, but thank you for trying. Um, okay, <laughs> round three: internet personalities. This one, I think, this is it. This is my chance. I've been they've been quite easy so far, but this is when it really steps up again. You ready? What is Jason Stanley's full academic title? Oh no! The the, uh, the uh, I've watched that video where it's just oh. <laughs> I, the I want- Jacob Urowski professor, the fuck Jacob Urowski. All right, Jesse, come on, dig, dig. I don't know. I don't have it. I don't. I can't dig. Uh, I can. I can just picture him. I can picture him saying it. Hi, hi, <laughs> hello, Urowski. Jacob Urowski. I just think of him as like the chief moral arbiter yeah. of everything. The chief of Urowski endowed <laughs> professor at I, I went to Yale. I can I can give you half a point. The Jacob Urofsky Professor yes. of Philosophy at Yale. Yeah, that's you know I think Jacob Urofsky really was more than I was expecting you to get. <laughs> um, and, and again, a, a very poor reflection on your character. I know. God. Next question: Elon Musk has ten children. Name one of them. X. <laughs> I'm going to require the full name. No, the full name. X dash Jesse, come on, pull your weight around here. Oh no, this is all the stuff I don't know. Uh, it's just like a straight. Wait, this is the Grimes one. Yeah, the one who's named after an airplane. Okay, I'm gonna take a wild guess. Oh my god, uh, <laughs> how wild? Okay, Elon Musk has a child named Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> No, he doesn't. Steven? Well, okay, wait, hold on. If we use worldwide name popularity, one of them is probably named, like, Muhammad. <laughs> Not as far as I... I mean, he knows. He may have more unacknowledged children that I don't know, and several of them may be called Muhammad, but not as far as we know. I'm going purely on the ones whose names we know. The one you were grouping for was XAshA12. Yeah, yeah. Does he have any names... Katie, e- idiot. Yeah. Does he have any named Elon Jr.? No, I don't know. Or several? Mr. Trick. Maybe the two that we don't know the names of are both called Alona and Alonic and Alonic. You know, Noel yeah. Leon. I just we could do a lot of stuff with, with anagrams. Um so Nevada Griffin Nevada. Yeah, Nevada's his first baby who died. Then Griffin Vivian, formerly Xavier, who's the trans one, Kai Saxon, Damien, X Ash A twelve, and Exadark Sidereal, I believe that's I'm willing to take the, the L on that one. I feel good about not knowing any of Elon's children's names. Yeah. I mean, in a way, weird if you did. Yeah. Um, okay, bonus question. What did Elon <laughs> Musk allegedly offer a flight attendant in return for an erotic massage? A horse. <laughs> I was so waiting for Jesse to say that, and yet you, you couldn't stop yourself. I, you knew it'd be funnier yeah. if he had to say it, Katie, <laughs> and yet your competitive spirit won. I can't trust him. Um, okay. Did you know that, Jesse? Uh, I, I did now. I'm performing very poorly, as I usually do on this podcast. And once you said it, I was like, yeah, I remember that story. You would know. I mean, who who among us hasn't given a flight attendant a horse in return for an erotic massage? Right. Who am I to judge? Uh, number nine, who wrote the following stinging rebuke to boring-ass dead people? Shakespeare isn't alone in being a shitty writer from hundreds of years ago. The most ambitious woman in Pride and Prejudice has a life goal of marrying a rich, handsome man who is also intelligent. The thought that a woman can have a career or even a hobby independent from her husband is outside the scope of the book. And don't get me started on the Canterbury Tales. Okay, is that A, John Stewart, B, 
Parker Malloy or C. Sam Bankman Fried? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with C. Or could be B. I'm going, think, B. I'm going with B. I'm going with B, Parker Malloy. Or A. Right. Or, you know, which one are you going for? What's the final answer? <laughs> oh, fuck. All right, let's go with Parker. Yeah. It is Sam Bankman Freed. Oh, oh God damn it, Jesse. <laughs> you see you... what's through you there is that that was like a classic slate pitch, which is like yeah. Jane Austen, what yeah. a cow. Yeah. Yet, yeah, I thought it was going to be Jude Doyle. <laughs> oh, didn't even think of that. Oh, anyway, that's upset me now. Um, okay, number 10. The podcast of which of Jesse's many, many enemies was described in Freddie DeBoer's post, The Good White Man roster like this. I genuinely don't know why they bothered to record the show, other than their audience needs to pass the time on their commute to being the chief diversity officer at a factory farming conglomerate. (laughs) (laughs) Whose podcast was that? I I would guess Michael Hobbs. What do you think, Katie? That's not my official guess. Yeah, Yeah, I would guess Michael Hobbs. Whom's this the podcast? What's the name of the podcast? You're wrong about. You're wrong about. But he doesn't have that anymore. Maintenance phase. Right. 500 pounds and happy. Yeah. I think it's called, I think it's called, there's literally no downside to any level of obesity, no matter how obscene. I think that's the name, if memory serves. Okay. So you, you, but the answer, to be clear, the answer you're giving to this question is Michael Hobbs. Luckily, you are absolutely right. right. (laughs) Well, I knew it. (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) As I always thought. Okay. We now move to the quick fire round, which is called Who Run the World? Geriatric Millennials. Um, as you might know, all three of us were born in 1983. So in a bid to make us all feel kind of shit about being 40 next year and still chronically online. We should have a group party where we just do this. As long as you can wrap up by like 9 or 10 p.m. <laughs> it's fine with me. 15 minutes of grievances, 15 minutes of all our enemies, 15 minutes where we read out the name of anyone who's ever blocked right. us. Oh, I love Twitter that idea. And make mean comments about them. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read out the names of people and you have to tell me whether or not they are older or younger than us. So they okay. will all be born outside of the year 1983. Okay. Older or younger. WAP reciter Ben Shapiro. Oh, fuck. He's slightly younger. Younger, yeah. Correct. He is born in 1984, which upsets me greatly. Uh, yeah. Small Bean and friend slash foe of attack helicopters Anna Mardol. I think older. I think... <sighs> I mean, she should be younger, but I think older. I think older, yeah. Correct. She's born in 1982. Ah. She's less of a small bean. Than we <laughs> Old bean. You mean they. You mean oh, they. Sorry, They're a he, they bean. No, no. A small they bean. It's his, he. Yeah. They. Uh, do we know. know how old Kissmate is? <laughs> <laughs> this is Kissmate. They're 92. <laughs> Or 14. <laughs> they didn't change the name. That's an old country, like Polish name. <laughs> it's Kismats. <laughs> oh, I just find it viscerally upsetting. Um, mustachioed ACLU attorney Chase Strangio. Oh, fuck. You're probably younger. This I know because Chase, no, Chase is, uh, went to my high school. And really? Is no and way. Played, and played women's soccer. No way. And now he's trying to destroy it. Oh, so wait, I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's... Y- y'all fucking say um, it, Jesse. Come on. Well, no, I just don't know if it's true. I think one person told me that I didn't confirm it. I know that they, but I believe they went to my high school or he went to my high school. Uh, well, he so goes you, by you he right now. So you weren't there at the same time? No, he's older though. Okay. But you don't know if the soccer thing's real. Um, and we, I don't know if we overlapped. I mean, when I was in ninth grade, I, I believe it or not, was not hanging out with like seniors or whatever. They wanted to hang out with me. You weren't hanging out with girls. I was too busy. Uh, <laughs> well, I was, but it's very platonic. <laughs> anyway, older. older? All right. Older. Okay. 
All right. You did very well at this. Interesting personal connection. Um, I had really thought, so I test, I road tested these questions on um, Chris Kavanagh of Decoding the Gurus on the basis that he is plugged into the machine uh, and would be, um, and he only got one wrong. So you're not, you're not a touch in his PB, but you're doing pretty well so far. This is an impressive performance, frankly, more impressive than I thought you would get. <laughs> um, policy tweeter, Thank Matt you. Iglesias. <laughs> Uh, we're the same age. Wait. Oh, he's, he's older. He's older. No. Oh yeah. He's older. He's yeah. older. But we, he and I have the exact same birthday, but he's a year older. Two years older, as it turns out. He's born in 1981. Oh, two years older. Uh, can I, can I bounce back a question mm-hmm. to you, mm-hmm. Helen, about him? What two online personality did he date at least briefly at Harvard? Ooh. Anna Mardal. <laughs> no, but this is almost <laughs> no. as good as, as the fact that Barry Weiss dated Kate McKinnon, which is like... A hundred yeah. times more impressive than anything that I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it's not. It's not that good. God, I do not know who. Well, who's the answer to this? Uh, close personal friend of both me and the podcast, Nicole Cliff. Really? Oh, because she is now dating. Oh, I, why, this is like high school. We are so embarrassing. She uh, is now dating. Yeah. This is so <laughs> dating. <laughs> she's dating one of the worst fucking people I've ever encountered on Twitter. Is who she's dating. Gretchen yep. Falcon Martin, yeah. I believe, who, just... um, who wrote the book Manhunt, and. Uh, withdrew a piece she had written for the atlantic on sex work in game of thrones in protest at my appointment really oh that's a this shame like we worst. won't get to read that my understanding of her bo- <laughs> six degrees of kevin bacon ever right? <laughs> my understanding of her books tell me if i'm wrong i haven't read any of them but i'm just gonna spout off it'll be like a 15 page visceral description of a woman being tortured to death and at the end in parentheses it's like but she was a turf so it's okay right yeah i've read quite a bit of manhunt and um it was yeah, basically about you had to all these trans women had to go and harvest stuff from people's balls um, because whatever there was some rage virus that was kind of going around and people with too much testosterone. And then there's obviously a bit in a castle at the end where there's like a very obvious J.K. Rowling avatar, and then she like trips over a lamp or something, something, and then the castle burns down. And it's just, I mean, you know, I would say without being rude about it, it's very much what I would term one-handed literature. I'm surprised this wasn't a bestseller. I mean, it got like, I think, pretty glowing coverage from NPR and stuff, which can you imagine any other situation in which like, whatever, yeah. we don't need it. Helen, I've had enough of your obsession with gender. Okay, can we just move <laughs> your on? weird rape fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, CRT demonizer Chris Rufo. Uh, younger. Younger. The trouble with this is that all the people that you think, oh God, they're objectively more famous than me. I've picked yeah. because they're younger to make us feel bad about ourselves. Um, yeah. Fifth column is Camille Foster older it's not camelli uh he's no, younger not. though no he's no. older he's older no he's not you, yes he you, is are you sh- helen <laughs> i'm afraid i i'm ruling in favor of katie he's born in 1980 yeah why did i think okay because right. <laughs> you're expecting people who are better than you to be younger than you given the nature of the yeah, that's true. And, yeah that's what you it is out that one i'm yeah. afraid uh okay woman noah matt walsh <laughs> younger i think he's a little bit younger yeah 1986, which frankly oh, makes me feel yeah. upset really and wronged. Yeah. New York Times refugee Barry Weiss. Younger. She's younger. She's 1984. Yeah. Uh, tech blogger turned alt writer turned ex gay Christian shopping channel host turned Kanye fluffer turned sacked Kanye fluffer, Marianopolis. <laughs> Older. Uh, I think Milo, I don't know how I know this. I want to say he's like 84. I'm going to say younger. All right. Let's, we're split on this one. Yeah. This time, I'm afraid it is a Jesse win. He is Damn a bit younger. Hell yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think you w- I would invite you to do is go and look at photos of all of these people on Google Images and see which ones of them you feel you're aging better than. Uh, I'm going to do that right after this. Okay. We now move to the important tie break question uh, where I ask you about things that the other one would be interested in. Jesse, what breed of dog was Moose, the dog <laughs> whose death divided the Park Slope Panthers? Oh, fuck. Oh, it's so I, easy, Jesse. No, it's just I totally knew this, but I just, my brain, <laughs> I just, working working with Katie takes such a cognitive toll. Uh, Come on, it's so easy. Uh, uh, Jesus. Uh, maybe, a, uh, was it a, a lab? Nope. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. Can I answer this? I mean, Katie, do you, do you actually know? Yeah, go on. Of course he was. He was a golden retriever mix. Oh. He was a golden retriever mix, and I don't know mixed with what. It was um, not a golden doodle because I saw pictures and he didn't have curly hair. Yes, I too tapped the dog <laughs> and was like, hmm, it's like an Alsatian, but yeah, yeah. it's definitely not a golden doodle. Yeah. Katie. Yes. What unexpected and definitely not Irish food was Keffel's trying in Belfast? Oh, God. Oh, how can you not remember this? I don't remember this at all. Did you even... Haggis? I know you hated those episodes. Oh, come uh, on. Pizza? <laughs> nope. <laughs> pizza. It, it was poutine. It was poutine. Oh, poutine. Yeah. She, she, I, need, I need to be very careful. People are trying to kill me. Here's the kind of food I'm going to get in a city that has almost none of it. Yeah. Also, I'm going to live stream it. Yeah, in yeah. Belfast, home yeah. of poutine. Yeah, it's interesting okay. that it wasn't. Wait, isn't Keffel's Canadian? It's interesting that she yeah. would go all the way to Ireland and eat Canadian food. She was homesick from being ch- literally, ch- as yeah, Ben Collins headline told us, chased to Belfast by yes, Kiwi Farms and then with her exact location. Yes. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be chased to Belfast. Okay, so for people playing along at home, these are scores out of 22. Between 1 and 10, congratulations, you know how to touch grass. 11 to 18, maybe get one of your friends to lock you out of your Twitter account. And 19 to 22, which I believe is what you scored, I think. Nice. Seek immediate help. Kill yourself, yes. (laughs) Oh, that is so depressing. I I feel like I need to take a shower now and go like learn some math or something valuable. Just think of all the stuff you could have in your brain if you didn't have every name that James Lindsay (laughs) has called himself on Twitter over the past year. A lot of my friends who aren't online speak second languages and like have families. I'm just curious Uh what I could have done if it weren't for social media. But Jesse, do they have podcasts? No, very few of them do. And uh, isn't that the most precious family of all when you think about it? (laughs) Indeed. Thank you for that, Helen. That was excellent. That was excellent. I hope hope you appreciated that. That took me. That was the work of some, mainly some sad Googling as I was like, oh God, another one. You actually, you actually got fired from the Atlantic because you just spent all, all your time putting that quiz together. I know. You know, if I never go to go to pub quizzes, but if they if they had severely online pub quiz, I would actually go and I think do pretty well. Can you imagine if I gave this to my actual family at Christmas and they'd be like, <laughs> "Why are these? Please what, do that. We need to, we need to talk. What are these pedophile rhymes about? Like, what are you even doing on the internet? All right, Helen, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And then, uh, yeah, I was going to say Happy Christmas, but post Happy Christmas, Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, in fact. And uh, I hope you have another happy and successful year. Neither of you go insane from too much internet. That is my biggest wish for you. You as well. And where can people find the new series? Uh, Anywhere they find podcasts. Just search for The New Gurus. All right. Check that out. And Helen Lewis, thanks again. Thank you so much, Helen. That was great. I was glad we were able to have Helen on. Me too. I am very, very disappointed with both of us for knowing way too much about the fucking internet drama. This does not feel good. I know. It's so... We know the fucking ages of people with, like, real 
problems who who should we shouldn't even know who they are i know i was very surprised that um helen did not do an older younger for noah berlatsky because <laughs> that's like that's like the biggest gap between and again i'm rapidly aging i age three years every month but like there's not a bigger gap between how old you think someone is and how old they actually are than noah berlatsky noah berlatsky is a senior citizen <laughs> just about and he writes he really like a 24 year old tumblr person who is new to politics yeah i hear tumblr's coming back that might be good for noah's career yeah it's uh our brain is full of garbage but we've been able to as as uh 2022 comes to a close i'm just gonna reflect on the fact that i was able to transmute my brain garbage into money which what, what else can you really hope to do in life so what do you think 2022 good year bad year how do you rate it i mean <laughs> It's horrible, wasn't it? Was it really? It's good for us. It's good for us. There were some highs and some lows. That's always true of years, right? Very few years are just bad or just good. But uh, no, I don't know. We're 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 lucky. It's cool we get to do this for a living. It's just like it's that time of the year where it's like, okay, let's let's see if the next one goes a little bit more smooth. You know what? It's either going to be better or worse or exactly the same. Yep, that's my prediction too. And I think we're gonna we're gonna hit that one. All right, Jesse. uh, Anything else? Yes, um, this is going to be very hard for everyone to bear because I know when folks get back from uh, as they're recovering from their New Year's Eve festivities, the the first thing they want to do is hear more Blocked and Reported. We will be taking that week off. That week being hold for me checking the calendar. Yeah, so we would usually have a public episode January second. We will not have one that week, but we'll be back January 9th. Oh, the other thing is uh, we will have a premium episode this week. So another reason to become a premium subscriber. It's a really crazy cancellation story, and what better way to end the year than with a crazy cancellation story. All right. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you next year. Thank you for listening. Uh, This has been Blocked Reported. As always, we're produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, Milo Yiannopoulos is 95 years old. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you forgot to get your kiss mate a pervert for nuance t-shirt this holiday season, there's still time for Valentine's.